Well, happy day there, everybody. How are you doing? I'm Seth. Welcome back to the show. A couple quick, quick announcements. I also wanted to say very much a thank you. So let me do the thank you first. To the patrons of the show, I know a lot of people don't listen to the end of the show because I get some demographics on that and some, some data on that. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Literally, it's like a Christmas gift every month. And so thank you so very much. You make the show go. And I don't have better words than thank you, but I'm so grateful. Now, my life in December is about to get very busy, busier more so than normal. So where I work during the day is going through a merger and I'm having multiple hats to fill every single day. So my availability to record new episodes during the month of December is really only like six days for the entire month. And so I will do my best to ensure that we get new content every week. There may be an episode or two that is not new content. And so I will do my best to choose something that I think is beneficial um, for me and by proxy, hopefully you, to have kind of re-released out into the world. Thank you in advance for your understanding of that. And with that said, this week, I brought on James Danaher. Now I'm going to call him Jim because we're good like that. However, he wrote a book about the bicameral brain in Jesus, and it is really, really good. It is a, is a new way of, of lenses to kind of view and rethink the gospel and knowing and being a bit on doctrines and theologies. And I absolutely love the left hemisphere versus right hemisphere kind of back and forth and ebb and flow when we think about the gospels. And so, so I hope that you get as much out of this conversation as I did. The book is also very fantastic. So without further ado, let's go. James Danaher, welcome back to the show. Um, I think I had you on like three or four years ago, so time flies. I can remember exactly where I was sitting at my old church office somewhere. So it's it's been some years. Welcome back, man. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, it's good to be back. What um what's been new? So it's been four years. We've had an entire presidency come in and out. What's what's new since since we talked last? That's really had an enormous effect on me. You know, I I taught at an evangelical college for 29 years. And I thought I understood evangelicalism. Uh, I thought I was an evangelical. And then five years ago, everything changed. And uh, what I've really been working on these last five years is trying to explain that. How, how did evangelicalism end up where it's ended up? And I think this book in particular, Jesus and the Bicameral Brain, tries to explain that. Uh, the level of consciousness that the left brain gives us access to is the world. It's the culture. It's everything we've learned about how to live in the world. And it's, it's based on uh, survival of the fittest. It's the subject-object relationship. It's me against the world. It's the basis for our economy. You know, Adam yeah. Smith says that we don't expect our dinner from the benevolence of the butcher and the baker, but from their self-interest. Mm. And the left brain is all about self-interest. And I see evangelicals, they, uh, it's, it's about being saved. I'm saved. I'm not going to hell. End of story. Leave me alone. <laughs> and I, I just see evangelicalism as reducing Jesus to the Jewish Messiah. He pays for our sins. 
He's the blood sacrifice. He's the scapegoat. End of story. You believe that, and uh, you're going to heaven. What else do you need to know? Well, what about the words of Jesus? <laughs> and my argument is Jesus do not appeal to the left brain. The left brain thinks that's stupid, nonviolence, uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, no. one to, do one to others <laughs> and you can have them do one to you. Yeah. Uh, love your enemy, you know. Mm. Judge no one, forgive everyone. That's crazy stuff to the left brain. And that's why I think prayer is so important. One of the central chapters in this this book on Jesus and the bicameral brain is the idea of prayer as a different level of consciousness. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's the contemplative practice of silence and solitude and getting to that, that place where you're no longer in the world, that yeah. you disconnect from the world and you get down to that deeper place. And from that deeper place, you can see the beauty and goodness of Jesus' words. Yeah, and they can't be seen from from where we are in the world, and that's why we've made Christianity, or at least the evangelicals have, into something that's just something to believe. It's a doctrine to believe, uh, rather than the words of Jesus really taking root at the core of our being. Yeah, it's not a way to transforming. live. Transforming. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, very much so. I um, I forget who it is. I was listening to something the other day. It might have been a sermon, or it was a pastor expounding upon a sermon. And he had said that he basically teached uh, the Beatitudes and didn't really, he worked them in using different words. So we'll call it like the paraphrased message translation and never even gave the people the text, just expounded for a little while on how we should really operate in the world that we live in. And people lit him up for it. And then afterwards was like, by the way, I I was paraphrasing this and this and this. And then people like, We're really taken aback. And he's like, I don't know why you're so mad at me. I presented it in this way intentionally. And um, we're going to need to do something with this, with this anger. Uh, Yeah, very much. So I do want to talk to you about prayer. So I've only written down three or four questions. Um, Prayer is in that. The rest of them are more, can you expound on this? Uh, It's been long enough, Jim. So the first time we chatted, I like scripted every question because I had no confidence in my ability to ask good questions. Since then, I realized the only person the podcast is actually for is me. Um, and if anyone else likes to listen to it, that's great. But it, it needs to be my my earnest questions. Can we, I want to rewind a bit. What is a bicameral brain? We joked earlier before I hit the go button, or I had already hit go, but I'm going to edit that part out. What is like bicameral, like what is that to begin with? Just to kind of set a level set because left brain, right brain, you know, you'll you'll see stupid things on the internet about why all women are left brain or why all men are right brain or why all bankers are left brain or artists are right. You know what I mean? What is that? What's, what's bicameral anything really? There's a great book, uh, Ian McGilchrist, who's an Oxford scholar, uh, published a book in 2009 called the master and his emissary. And what he argues in it is that we've become a left brain culture where the left brain supposes itself to be the master and the right brain is more or less the dullard brother whatever and he argues it's just the opposite it's the right brain that gives us access to the moral to the aesthetic to the imagination and uh, it's just modern culture especially starting with Descartes my my specialty was history of philosophy Mm. specializing in modern philosophy I did my dissertation on John Locke on real and nominal essences and uh, I'm a great opponent of Descartes. And this is what McGilchrist comes out to against, too. Uh, 
and he's constantly uh, showing us that the left brain acts like it's in charge, but it's really the emissary. And his analogy is that uh, the master uh, of any domain uh, can't do all the little details. So he gets an emissary, and he sends the emissary out, and the emissary does all the little, you know, donkey work. Uh, and after a while, though, the emissary starts believing that they're really the important one. They're doing all now, the work. What do we need for? I'm the one that's doing all this work. Mm. And the emissary becomes or or uh, sees himself as the master. And what McGilchrist is saying, if we go back historically uh, before the modern period, we see that uh, it was always the right brain. Uh, Plato, it's always the right brain that's the, the master for Socrates, for Plato. That starts to change with Aristotle. But in the modern period with Descartes, it becomes all left brain. Hmm. And religion is just a left brain thing. It's about what do you believe? Uh, what you believe is what's going to keep you out of hell. Really? Where does Jesus say that? Uh, Jesus <laughs> is always talking about your being. And that's why the, the distinction I make is the left brain is about knowing, especially knowing the world. It's what connects us to the world. And the right brain is what connects us to being. You know, when Jesus says, uh, that he is the way and the truth and the light. He's not talking about a truth that's something to know. He's talking about a truth that's something that's both beautiful and good as well as true. Aristotle had said that uh, human beings are involved in three basic activities, making, doing, and knowing. When we make, we want to make what's beautiful. When we do, we want to do what's good. And when we know, we want to know what's true. And and that was the ancient wisdom, that, that the truth was about your truth, uh, how am I manifesting my beauty and my goodness? In the modern period, look at modern science. It has nothing to do with beauty or goodness. Yeah. It's just about truth. We it's just, just want to know. Yeah. And, and Protestantism, I, I heard a scholar say the other day that Protestantism is the first religion, especially evangelicalism, I guess, first religion in the history of the world that only requires a belief. It doesn't go beyond the belief. It doesn't have a moral element. Mm. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He's the Messiah. And he paid for my sins, and they equate the forgiveness of sins with righteousness. Mm. And Jesus never does that. Mm. Jesus equates uh, righteousness with the with the, the virtues that he talks about. Yeah. Uh, become his mercy, his forgiveness, his love to the world. You talk about anomalous data, and that's a word that I have practiced this morning because that is a hard right. word to say. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase two different parts. It's right at the beginning of the book. Um, they're among the first things that I underlined. So you talk about like you know the left the left brain acquiring knowledge, and the right brain seems to have access to anomalous data. And then you say people with excessive security needs will tend to avoid anomalous data and cling to what they purport to know. And then a little right. further, you say that those things that are anonymous are inherited understanding, and we ignore them because Jesus' words will always be filtered out by what we have inherited. What do you mean by like what we've inherited in anonymous data? You know, I did a book a couple of years ago, uh, and it was about uh, it's, it was the history of philosophy as that kind of critical thinking, where you know the first stage of learning is just acquiring data. And after we get a lot of data, 
then the, we can become critical thinkers and look at data in comparison to our understanding. But the philosophical level of thinking goes beyond that, and it sees within the understanding itself anomalies, things that, wait, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And it's rethinking your foundations. Uh, and I think that's what Jesus is constantly calling us to do. Jesus is constantly speaking against the culture. Mm. Uh, and faith, I think a lot of people think, is no. Faith is never seeing the anomalies, ignoring the anomalies. Well, I just believe. you know. Okay, fine. But the, the deeper life that Jesus is calling us to is, is seeing the anomalies in the things that he says uh, and how different that is from the culture. Uh, there's uh, Lectio Divina is the mm -hmm. Catholic term for reading scripture. And it's, it's doing the reading and seeing the problem in that. You know, I, I was with a group of men the other day and uh, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Jesus says right after the, uh, the beginning of, of chapter five in the sermon, he says he didn't come to uh, do away with the, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And then he gives six examples of what the law says and then what he says that's completely contrary to the law. Yeah, but I tell you, yeah. What do you do with that? Yeah. What do you do with that? And I, I said that to a pastor a little while ago, and the pastor said, well, Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Okay, but then look what he does. How do you explain that? That's supposed to draw you into God's presence and, and get you to spend enough time in God's presence and get to that deeper level of consciousness where God will explain it to you. You know, Jesus says that the Father will send the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he will explain all things to you and remind you of all that I have said. But you have to sit with what Jesus says. Jesus is the Word of God, not the Bible. I hear people constantly say, well, the Bible is the Word of God. It, it never says it's the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. That's what it says in John, the first chapter, and it says that in Revelation. His name is the Word of God. Yeah. And it's taking Jesus' words. I think one of the greatest parables is the parable of the sower. Mm. Jesus says a man went out to sow seed. And then he explains the parable to the, to the disciples. And he says that the seed is the word of God. And it only, it only takes root in 25% of the people that hear it, according to the parable. He says it falls on four different grounds. Only one of those grounds takes root. The other three grounds, it doesn't take root. And uh, there's, there's a chapter in the book on the parable of the sower. And the next chapter is uh, a chapter on Christianity light. And what I argue is that what do you do with the other 75% of the, the people who hear the words and it doesn't take root? Well, you create Christianity light, which is a belief in Jesus and Jesus' death on the cross, yeah. but it has nothing to do with the words of Jesus. Yeah, you actually and, say in here, I like, there's a, a part in Christianity light. You, you jumped there before I was going there, but I'm already on that page. Like that's where the bookmark was okay. left. What are you saying here? Christianity light is usually quick to agree with this with that statement. What you're talking about inherited world about what did you put in here? Jesus's words are heretical to most popular forms of Christianity, since the basis for most forms of Christianity is inherited is our inherited cultural understanding. 
And then you go on to say, and you know, most people argue that liberals have made our culture into something ungodly, but in truth, many agnostics and atheists live closer to the teachings of Jesus than many Bible-believing Christians, um, yeah. which 100%, I 100% agree, 128%. Yeah. At the end of that chapter, though, I do say that it's not that uh, Christianity light is a false gospel. It's just an elementary gospel. Mm. Uh, that th- Where else would you start? How else? I mean, I can't imagine. I know Jesus sold his message to the disciples, but to sell his message to the world today, it, it almost looks like you have to start with, I know I didn't, I didn't get to this place Uh it took me 45, 50 years to get to this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a journey. It's a, this transformation that God is calling us to. And it starts, I guess, with a belief. And it starts with a, um, a notion that God is, um, you know, God is this sovereign ruler who gives us these laws and punishes disobedience. And But if you stay with it and especially start paying attention to the words of Jesus, Jesus, the, the most important thing Jesus ever said was our father. Mm. Uh, he says it 16 times in the sermon alone. He says, our father, your father, your heavenly father. If God is your father, that changes everything. Sin is no longer a matter of obedience uh, and to, in order to avoid punishment. Uh, that's, that's not who fathers are. When you're a little kid, you might think that. You might think, oh, all my father wants is for me to, to obey him, you know? You know? I think my and, kids would uh, agree with as that. As you get older, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as you get older, you realize, no, uh, the reason why he's telling you that is he wants you to experience the fullness of life, you yeah. know? Yeah. And sin is what keeps you from the fullness of life. It's not what pisses God off. Yeah. But it takes years to get to that place. Uh, and it, it takes basically the death of the false self. Yeah. Uh, the false self wants, uh, I just want, I don't want to look at my myself. I, I just want to pretend that I am who I project to the world, and that's the real me. And what deep prayer does is uh, it's really a form of therapy. Uh, if you spend a lot of time in God's presence at that deeper level of consciousness, all the junk that, that usually are the result of childhood wounds that have formed our personalities, formed our false self, comes to the surface, and we're able to let them go, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I, if I was to say everything that you just said specifically about sin, I walked into random church in the middle of Indiana or Oklahoma or Texas or whatever, um, they, would, they would run me out as a heretic. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. Being your relationship to the evangelical world, especially with your relationship with Nyack College, how does this come across to people that maybe don't have a personal relationship with you where they're like, yeah, Jim has literally drunk all of the Kool-Aid, high as a kite over there. He's believing in a different gospel. You know, you get the heretic word thrown around, which I like what you say about heresy. You say heretics have always represented a threat to the security that most people derive from believing just what everybody else believes. Um, which I, so what would happen if I walked into a church and literally just repeated what you said about sin? And to be clear, I have said similar things in a church about sin, uh, especially to my kid. I most recently said, uh, cause he, he did something that was overtly intentionally sinful. 
So I walked him through, you know, hamartia and how it's an archery term and you're intentionally missing the mark or maybe unintentionally, but either way you miss the mark and the wages of that are things die. In this case, it was a relationship with a friend. That was the wages of that. It was death and you killed that relationship. Um, Make better choices and instead you, things come alive, but that's a different thing. And people get mad on Sunday if you say that in certain churches. So how is this received um, by people that aren't necessarily as heretical as me. <laughs> it's uh, my philosophy majors uh, would get it, and there there are some evangelicals. Uh, well, yourself as an example uh, that that are seeing this. They've they've been on the journey and they've gotten someplace. But I think a lot of people a lot of people tell me, look, I, I just don't want to go to hell. You know, <laughs> I, I don't want to get crazy with this Jesus thing. Uh, I just don't want to go to hell. Jesus is my savior. Okay. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And then I turn around and tell them you're creating hell with your decisions right now. It's not a place you're going. It's a place you're making and you missed the whole point. And then I get a glazed over look. (laughs) Yeah. My next book is, uh, the basis for it is God is love. God Mm. is unconditional love. And he wants to make us into his likeness. Mm. Uh, but, in order, and, and not only did God make us with love at the, the core of our being in his likeness, but he also made us in his likeness by making us free. And we're able to direct that love however we wish. And Jesus tells us the best things to love and the worst things to love. And the best things to love are what put us in the heavenly state, and the worst things to love are what put us in, a, in hell. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus, one of the, the greatest things that Jesus ever said, uh, in the fifth chapter of John's gospel, he says, the father judges no one, but give, has given all judgment to the son. And then in the 12th tra- chapter of John, he says, and I judge no one, but you do have a judge. The words that I've spoken to you will be your judge. And uh, I take that to mean Jesus tells us the best things to love and the worst things to love. And the worst things to love are the things that the world tells us to love. Wealth, power, prestige, fame, you know, yeah. uh, that's what the world tells you. You want to be happy? That's get enough money. Jesus has eight teachings against money, eight teachings against money. We pay no attention to that. Well, there's nothing now. It's the love of money. That's a pro- and well, capitalism. Money, you know? You're aware that we're capitalists, right? Money is the money's the thing. <laughs> exactly. I, uh, I don't know if it's in this book, but I, I often talk because I, uh, I have a, a graduate degree in the social sciences as well. And years ago, I used to teach economics mm. and I would tell the students all the time, uh, money has three functions. It's a means of exchange to overcome barter. Uh, it's a store of value, capital, but it's also the measure of value. How good is that car? How good is that suit? And we measure, just like we measure distance in miles, we measure value in dollars. And that's the great lie. That's the great lie. And the prosperity gospel that incorporates that into the gospel and says, no, Jesus wants you to be wealthy. Okay. You have to ignore everything that Jesus (laughs) said. Because it's just the opposite of that. It's poverty. It's being reduced to who you are in God, which means the death of the false self. The self that you've created to be in the world has to die. That's the that's the transformation. Uh, I uh, I was in the world for a long time. Somebody told me this once. Uh, They said, you know, when somebody meets you, 
Uh, I, I, I was a quarterback uh, when I was a kid. From the time I was eight years old, I was a quarterback in high school. I was a quarterback in college. And somebody told me uh, recently, they said, you know, when somebody meets you, they, they don't find out that you have a doctorate or you're a professor or uh, but and you've got nine books out. But within the first half an hour, they're going to know that you were a quarterback. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> and, you know, that's the false self. That's I was always little. And I was told I, I was too little to play in high school. And then after high school, they told me, yeah, you're too little to play in college, you know. And uh, that that was just such a drive. That was, you know, that's this false self that I've created. And then I added to that false self by getting a PhD and by writing books and stuff like that. But that's not who God created. God created that, that self who I was before the world got a hold of me and started making its likeness. Yeah. That's what the born-again experience is. Get back to who you were before the world got a hold of you. That's why Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you'll never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's about becoming who God made me to be and not who the world made me to be. Yeah. But we fall in love with ourselves, you know, and uh, our love, we have that freedom. We can attach. Uh, my favorite definition of love is uh, based on uh, an early 20th century Spanish philosopher, Ortega y Gasset, says what love is, is attention abnormally fixed. Mm. The things, you know, we say, oh, I love this and I love that. Really? Is your attention abnormally fixed upon those things? Yeah, what you it's love is your iPhone. Up. That's what you love. You yeah, love that exactly. phone. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it's about abnormally fixing your attention on the things of God. And the best place to do that is just to take the words of Jesus, especially the words that don't make any sense, you know, unless you hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. What does that mean? It's where did you get your cultural values? Where did you get, how did the world get into you? Yeah. Through your family, through yeah. your culture. And and you think that's who you are. That is not who you are. That's the lie. And you're never going to hear the words of Jesus until that self starts to die. Mm. And you start to identify with who you are in God. And that only happens through prayer. And not prayer, bah, 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 you know, all the petitions to God. Just the silence. <laughs> Shut up, shut up, you know, get along with God. That's why he, Jesus says in the sermon, you know, get it, get into your inner room. Now that obviously is a metaphor for that deeper level of consciousness. Be still, be still and know that I am God, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's from that place that you can see the words of Jesus and how beautiful and good they are. Give me a minute. We'll be right back. early on in your book, and then I want to relate it to liminal spaces, mostly because that's something my pastor talks about a lot. Um, and so I'd like to get your your context of what you mean when you say liminal space and how that relates to um, your book. But you use the word behold in a way that I don't use it. So I read behold, and, and in my mind, it's a left brain activity. It's take note of this. Right. Behold, right. I've arrived at work. Behold, yeah. 
Um, you know, I paid my taxes. Uh, but you're using behold as, a, as saying, you know, it means don't miss this experience, which is really more of a right brain activity. But how does like the verb of beholding, which feels like that's yeah. not a real sentence, um, maybe yeah. it is. How does that, like, what is that? And then maybe how does that connect to liminal spaces, which are in two different chapters, but I'm going to make them go together because it feels right to me. Right. I, I get that uh, that word behold from the woman that I just mentioned a little while ago. Uh, Maggie Ross is her, her pen name. Uh, Martha Reeves is her real name. And she wrote a book a number of years ago called uh, Silence, A Reader's Guide, A User's Guide. I'm sorry. And, and she defines behold in a way that I had never heard it before. It's, it's about not knowing. It's not about paying attention to something in order to know something, but it's being awestruck by something, something that goes beyond the imagination, something that just grabs a hold of you. That's the mystery. You know, we've made the cross into a, an 11th century atonement theory when it, the cross is this mystery of God, that God enters the world. He gives himself away to the world uh, in a way that's just unbelievable. It, it, and that's what beholding is. Beholding is not knowing something. It's the not knowing. Mm. And it's it's the not knowing that is the, the basis for the journey. Once you, I, I, I say all the time when people say, I know God, I tell them that's another way of saying I've gone far enough. You know, mm. I've gone far enough with God. I'm not going any further. Okay, f- fine, fine. But understand that you're creating your own eternal nature and character. Uh, God doesn't judge us. He allows us to create our own eternal nature and character by the things we love. And the, the best thing you can love is Jesus and wanting to be like him. You know, the Old Testament is about Moses giving a law. It's about God meeting people in the world. Jesus' words are about the kingdom and bringing the kingdom to earth. How do you do that? Uh, well, you make his words your own, and you, you, you repent over them enough and repent against the, the things that the world tells you to love until those words really start taking root within you. And you suddenly you find yourself, not suddenly, but after years of doing this, you find yourself, you, you don't judge other people. You just start to be God's love to the world. And, and it's amazing what happens. Uh, instead of you reacting to people and, well, I'm going to show that guy. He, may, he thinks he can talk to me that way. No, start loving that person, and they melt in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the most unbelievable power in the world. But uh, I think most of us say, look, I just want to receive God's love and God's forgiveness. I don't want to become God's forgiveness to the world. That's what that's who Jesus is. I can't be like Jesus. Well, that's exactly what he's calling you to do. Mm. He's calling you to be his disciples, to be his mercy, forgiveness, and love to the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What is sorry, a what no, no, no. What is a liminal space? What is that? Uh Liminal space is that that space that isn't occupied. It's the uh, it's it's the place of prayer. When you're in a place of prayer, uh, you're not in the world any longer. You're you're in that place that's uh, that's sacred. That's uh, but it, it it takes a real practice. If you don't, I keep on you know when I talk to people, uh, I ask them, "What's your practice?" 
They go, what, what do you mean what you practice? Well, how many times a day do you get alone with God and for how long? Oh, I, I don't have time to uh, get alone with God. I, I, I am so busy. Yeah, I know. Everybody's busy. And, <laughs> and it's not right for me to talk about this because I'm retired now. I can hang out with God three, four hours a day. Yeah. Uh, just practicing his presence. You, you, you read, uh, brother Lawrence's practicing the presence of God. I'm not. It's a great book. It's, it's a little tiny book. It's about a 17th century monk who, uh, wrote one book in his life. Uh, he was the, he wasn't even the cook in the monastery. He was the dishwasher in the monastery. But what he would do as he was washing the dishes and pots and pans is he would practice the presence of God being conscious of God's presence. And there's some times where you get really quiet and really in a solitary place, in that inner room, and you start to experience God's presence enough that you come to identify with who you are in that presence yeah. rather than who you are in the world. I think that's how transformation takes place. Yeah, You have to have that prayer practice. I listen to uh, Thomas Keating a lot. Uh, you know Thomas Keating? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's... He's just the best. Uh, there's, uh, I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. I spent 11 weeks uh, a dozen years ago with Richard Rohr, and uh, he's had a big influence on my life. But Keating is uh, Keating just takes it to another level. Level. He's, mm. He died. Uh, 2008, right? 2008, or something like that. Yeah. 18. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Is, do you feel like prayer is predominantly a, a left brain or a right brain thing? Oh, no, it's all right brain. It's, so how uh, do I get into that? Because I have inherited a left brain. Right. And, and even, like right. in a, even like in a more less, even in like a less of a Protestant way, there's so much rote memorization and ceremony attached to it that you can just put it on autopilot. So how do I, yeah. how do I begin to um, yeah. do that? I uh, I was just at a, a high school. Uh, I get together with some of the people that I went to high school with for lunch from time to time, and they asked me to pray uh, before we had lunch. Mm. And I, oh, I'm, so, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I don't pray in public anymore. Uh, you know, in the sermon, uh, in the sixth chapter, Jesus says, he talks about three things, uh, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, three religious activities. And he says the same thing about all three. Don't do it in public. Don't do it in public. Don't do it in public. And then he does the Lord's prayer in public. Go into your inner room, shut the door, shut the door, you know, get alone. This, this relationship with God is personal. It's personal. And when you're in public, you're always the false self. Mm. Uh, I, my, my wife is a great worshiper. She loves worship, and that's, that's where she meets God. I, I'm not a worshiper, and I think it's because when I'm in public, I'm the false self. I'm the false self. Mm. And it's only when I get alone and in the solitude and that I think the first scripture I ever heard when I became a Christian was, be still and know that I am God, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's about being still and knowing that he's God and spending time in that silence. And the scripture is so true. The, the father will send the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit who will explain all things and remind you of all that I have said. And that's the purpose of prayer. 
the purpose of prayer is to allow the soil of our soul to take those Jesus words and, and have them take root within us. Yeah. They don't take who we are in the world. And when we're in the world, uh, we're the phonies that uh, we've created to be in the world. And God is always looking to deal with us on a deeper level. Yeah. So if we're, so I, I agree with the false thing. I'm a big fan of the Enneagram because my pastor turned me on to it. And I don't know if you've studied that or not, but it's, it's helped me. Um, it's, it's, it's helped. Um, you said you haven't? No, no. Susan Stabile is a personal friend of mine. Oh, well, and then so, you definitely have. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. We've, uh, we've had some great times together, actually. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I can say, as I was wrestling with some of my, whatever makes me me, um, there's a listlessness or, or a listing, um, if you want to use like a metaphor of like a boat out at sea, of, of, un, of uncomfortability. And often I found that there were not places to safely take that in a way to reorient, reorient oneself to the horizon, either in your faith or in your personal relationships. Yeah. And so if you're going to begin in that work, what would you say for you, Jim, is maybe something that someone could hear saying, yeah, expect this to hurt or expect it not to hurt, but here are ways or practices to kind of reorient yourself because it is going to get bumpy because you're, you're disinheriting everything that you've inherited, um, but you're not forgetting those things. And those are easy to fall back on. Yeah. Well, I'm a three on the Enneagram. Okay. Uh, and it's, uh, you know what the sin of the three is? You're a quarterback. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm in charge. I'm in charge here. Here's what we're going to do. And I've gotten a lot out of the Enneagram. The place I'm at now in my in my walk, uh, you know, uh, uh, John of the Cross and the Dark Knight of Sense and then the Dark Knight of Spirit, and uh, I, I've done a lot of dying, that, that false self. But I, I think the only way you can see the sin of the false self, of the, the enneagram, whatever your number is. Five. Is you have to spend, yeah. Uh, you have, you're a five. <laughs> Which is why that left brain thing hurts so much to let go of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? when I was with Richard Rohr a dozen years ago, there was another guy that was an intern there. They had a, a program that you could be an intern uh, with Richard Rohr's CAC, uh, either for a year or 11 weeks. And I was on sabbatical at the time, so the 11 weeks were perfect. Yeah. But one of the other interns was a five. And he would sit up on top of the, the guest house roof and just watch. Just watch. You know, it's avarice, but it's intellectual avarice. It's what I want to know. I want to know. I want to know, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's why liminal has, you know, <laughs> I don't like that liminal state. I, I want to know. I want to figure this out. Yes. But what <laughs> by, by taking me down to that place where it was just me and God, and I was confident enough in God's love that he could show me who I was in the world. And the fact that it was ugly and the fact that I saw how despicable I was, it was okay. Mm. I could do that because he had a hold of me, mm. you know? Yeah. It's, it's a father telling you it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. But do you see this? Like what you did the other day with your son, you know, do you see what, what you did? Uh, it's okay. It's okay because I'm your father and I love you. But I'm showing you how this this is not who you are. 
this is not who I'm calling you to be. Mm. Uh, there's a deeper you. There's a better you. But you got to get rid of that, that you that the world created. Mm. And we've all been created by these wounds that we suffered in childhood. You know, I was little and, uh, and I hated being little and being told, well, you're, you're, you're not big enough to, to be a quarterback. You know, mm. now they have quarterbacks, you know, when I was in college too, the other quarterback was six, four, you know, and I'm five, nine. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I had a better arm than him, but you know, <laughs> all you need is good blockers and a good arm. The height isn't all that yeah. important. Yeah. Well, I never had good blockers, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, but, but it, it's that person that you're trying to make yourself into and, and finally consenting. And I think this is what prayer is. It's consenting to allow that person to die. Mm. Uh, in order that the, the, the you that God created begins to come forth. Do you think and our churches do that well? Do you think our churches give us a place to come prepared to grieve for that person that's dying? Because there is a loss there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, I think, the mercy of God. And if you don't have it, if you have a church that's all about righteousness and being righteous, mm. uh, no, you can't tolerate anything it, it uh, the kind of church that that jesus is trying to create is a church full of mercy and full of forgiveness you know the uh, and our problem is we create churches that are righteous you know yeah. and uh, evangelicalism is about righteousness and pointing at abortionists and pointing at homosexuals and what does that have to do with you yeah. what does that have to do with you know, where's your sin? And that's what, what's so neat about Jesus is he keeps on showing us the sin is deeper, the sin is deeper, the sin is deeper. The sin, if you pay attention to his words, he's going to reveal the sin at ever deeper levels. So his mercy will continue to flow through you to the world. Yeah. But you've got to be a sinner. You know, when, when Jesus says, take, this, take the log out of your own eye in order to see the splinter in the other person's eye, and we interpret that as, oh, well, you've got to take the sin out of your own eye. No, uh, a log is not the sin. It's righteousness. Take the righteousness out of your own eye so you can see the sin in somebody else's mm. eye. You know, it's the wisdom of Alcoholics Anonymous. Only sinners can minister to sinners. Make sure you know you're a sinner if you're going to be able to minister to sinners. Mm. And we go, no, no, uh, you have to be righteous to minister to sinners. Oh, shut up. You know, you're just, you're just a righteous jerk. That's the episode you know, title right there. Oh, God. shut up. That's and, the and episode title. Spent a lot of time with God because God would reveal, God's faithful to reveal that sin on ever deeper levels in order to transform you into his likeness. Mm. Uh, yeah. That's the message of the gospel. Yeah. That's the episode title right there. Oh, shut up. Couple exclamation marks. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Just shut up. You know? uh, you know, praying, just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Oh. Shut up. Listen. Listen. I love you know? it. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So couple, two questions left. Um, maybe sure. three, but I feel like you're not going to answer the third. No, so, but we'll, we'll go with that. Um, so, as as your experience has has led you to to think about this, if you have it all, for the next few years, so let's say the next three or four years, what do you feel like are the most important things that the congregants of any church body or faith body, really, for that matter, should be allowed to talk about without fear of getting like ostracized and kicked out? And if we don't, it's going to just continue to degrade the church as a whole. Yeah. Like, well, what are those I things you should be able to talk about? Like, what can I? Right. 
or should I? Yeah. Right. Uh, a, a, a prayer practice that really is about getting down to a, a level beneath the level that the world has a hold of you. Hmm. And, this, uh, you know, Catholics have a much better understanding of this than evangelicals do. Uh, evangelicals think, no, who I am in the world, this false self, is who God created. Uh, this is me. No, it's not. No, it's not. And if you paid attention to Jesus' words, you'd see. But the only way to pay attention to Jesus' words is through prayer and not verbal prayers, but getting alone with God and being still in his presence, you know? Mm. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. So I, I have a sarcastic question um, yeah. because I want to, and I feel like it. So if, we're, like if we're praying only in, in, in you know, in, in, in uh, I can't think of the word. If we're praying alone, um, you know, not yeah, not in public. How does one pray for the food at Thanksgiving? Because that's coming up here soon. Like, how do we do that? Yeah. Just I, I think that's okay. That's punch it, punch it to the kid. Just let the kids right. pray. <laughs> but don't think that that's your prayer life. Uh, you know, I uh, don't tell me about prayer. I pray every every meal. I pray. Oh, what do you do? You know, uh, that's not the prayer life that Jesus is calling you to. Jesus is calling you to get alone with the Father yeah. and and have enough confidence in his hold on you that you can see your sin at ever deeper levels. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I like that. Um, okay, so uh, last real final question. So when you try to wrap words around explaining what God or the divine or whatever word you want to use there is to people, what would you say to that if I was to say, hey, Jim, what, who is God? The heck, God? What is that? You know, I, I don't think the the concepts, the the words, and the theology has that much to do with it. It's about uh, are Jesus' words really taking root within your life? Uh, that that's why I think when we get when we get to the other side, we're going to see atheists that have a big place in that kingdom mm. and people who profess to be these great Christians, they're not there. They're not there. It's about what do you love? Do you, you know, I, I just recently had a buddy of mine die. Uh, and I just, I was watching a giant, uh, this is a, a little bit of a story, but uh, I've never really uh, had a male friend you know, a buddy. Mm -hmm. I, I've had a lot of acquaintances, but about twenty some years ago, my next door neighbor, uh, uh, we had moved into this uh, new townhouse, and uh, he had moved in next door with his wife, and he was a Giant fan, and I'm a Giant fan, and he was asking me to go to the Giant games with him. Uh, he had tickets to uh, to get to the Giant games since Yankee Stadium, mm. but I had. Mother at the time she was in her 90s and she had Alzheimer's, and it was a real. Uh, it was just too much to leave with my wife for four hours to go to a Giant game. But after my mother died, we started doing the Giant games, and then when they came up with the uh, you know ten thousand dollar a seat stuff like that, stop uh, going. we stopped going <laughs> to games and just watched it on TV, and we did that for uh, almost twenty years. And he just died in March, mm. and. Uh, just the other day I'm watching the game and I, I realized why I loved him so much. He was a nominal Jew, uh, had one eye, 
Uh, he was a musician, he and a businessman, but he was such a loving person, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have loved people, but loved them for what I could get. Uh, oh, I, I love that woman. Why? Because, well, I'm going to, you know? Yeah. And But Rich, just he was just loving. I never evangelized him. I never told him, you know, the sinner's prayer or anything like that. Uh, because I knew he, he, he was beyond that. And he, he was, he knew he was a rascal. Uh, he knew he wasn't a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination, but he so easily loved. Mm. And I loved, I, what I learned from him was how to just love somebody. Just, just be loving towards that person, you know? Mm. And uh, I, I, the only thing I ever said to him about my work, and I said, uh, the gospel is forgive everyone, judge no one, and love even your enemies. And his response was, well, who wouldn't believe that? Mm. Who wouldn't believe that? That's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And it doesn't matter what you profess. You know, the idea of you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, okay, fine. But what do you do with the things that Jesus says that contradict that? You know, uh, in the middle of the sermon, Jesus says, and if you don't forgive others their sins, God will not forgive you your sins. Yeah. Really? How does that work in with your theology? You know, <laughs> it's about being God's love to the world and his mercy and forgiveness. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think what you profess to believe counts for very, very little. Mm. Because what we claim to believe uh, is usually bullshit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, we say a whole bunch of things, and we say, oh, I believe this, and I believe that. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Talk to me next week and see what you believe, you know? <laughs> I believe that my, my specialty is the history of philosophy, so I know theories change over the course of time. Yeah. Doctrines change. And people go, well, I believe that. Really? You know, that's the 19th century doctrine, right? Yeah. Nobody yeah. believed that before the 19th century, you know? <laughs> I, do that with, uh, I do that with inerrancy often or, um, yeah. or with, like, the rapture, especially with the rapture when people that come into the, to where I work and they, they know that theology is my, is my thing. And I'll, I'll walk them through the history of the rapture and they will go, what's... Well, Everybody's always, but I was like, no, no, my dear, no. Everybody has not always. Actually, most of the time, people have not any way believed that. But it's okay if if you're yeah. good with that. I'm good with that. Um, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I think the most important chapter in all of Scripture uh, is the seventh chapter of Matthew, the end of the sermon, where Jesus says, "Build your house upon the rock," and he tells you what the rock is. It's his words. And he says, don't build your house on sand. And I think the sand are the doctrines, the mm. doctrines that come and go, and they're very popular, and you're believing what everybody else believes in the 13th century or in the 17th century or in the 21st century. But it doesn't count for anything. It, yeah. It's not something to build your life upon. Jesus' words are the things to build your life upon. Uh, that's the gospel. You know, when people say the tell us what the gospel is and it has nothing to do with Jesus' words. Mm. Oh, come on. You know, the, the great saints have always built their life upon Jesus' words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's how the, 
the gospel is going to continue to go forward in in all of its different forms. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So this is the part that I don't think that you're going to answer just because you refuse to even advertise that you write books. So plug the places, (laughs) Jim. Where do you want people to go to do stuff related to the work that you do where, do you, where should they go to if they want to buy the book which they should if they if they oh, well, you know like where, where do you want people to do things yeah my well my publisher is paragon house and they do have a great distributor uh, my books are at uh, walmart and uh what's the other target and amazon <laughs> and amazon in the uk is is going great uh and barnes and noble it's it's all over but it has to be something that you know uh, I, my, uh, I have a cousin that's about 15 years older than me. And she said, where are you going to promote your book? And I, can I come? No, I don't, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I did that when I taught and yeah. now I've pretty much become a hermit. Uh, and I just love just yeah. hanging out with God all day. So yeah. I really don't promote it very much. I told you, see, I didn't think you'd answer it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I will find all the links. I will put them in the show notes. I also transcribe these. So I'll put it in the transcript right about here, that word here, just click that word here and it'll take you to the places. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, Jim, I really appreciate our time this morning. I always enjoy talking with oh, you. It was great. Loved it. Yeah, good deal. Uh, I'll get another book out and we'll do this again. <laughs> we could do it without a book too. It's fine. Um, okay. Well, anytime so. you want to do it, I'm available. Now, I haven't added it up, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of podcasts on the internet, and I am humbled that you continue to download this one. If this is your first time here, please know that there are transcripts of these shows. Not always in real time, but I do my best. And if you go back in the logs, you can find transcripts for pretty much any episode that you'd like. The show is recorded and edited by me, but it is produced by the patron supporters of the show. That is one of the best, if not the best way that you can support the show. If you get anything at all out of these episodes, if you think on them or if you, you know, you're out and about and you tell your friends about it or, hey, mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, boss, pastor, here's what I heard. What are your thoughts on that? If this is helping you in any way, and it is helping me, consider supporting the show in that manner. It is extremely inexpensive, but collectively, it is so very much helpful. Now, for you... I pray that you are blessed and you know that you're cherished and beloved. We'll talk soon.